0: Good morning, it's good to see all of you this morning. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, and we will begin in verse 23 of chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning uh, through that chapter and into the 15th verse of chapter 3. We have these three verses left in chapter 2. It may have seemed like an odd place to stop. Last week, but there's a good reason for it. These three verses that we'll start with are very much a setup for this section that follows right after. Um, we'll stand in just a moment and read the whole passage together, but let me direct your attention and read to us verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2. This is what we'll start with here in a moment. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. It's very much a setup for what immediately follows. And in fact, uh, in a very real way, it's a setup for the next couple of chapters in this book because immediately following that statement, what we find are a string of one-on-one conversations between Jesus and individuals. Uh, after that string of one-on-ones, there will be a number of conversations between Jesus and groups of people. But here right after that statement at the end of chapter 2, you have all of these one-on-ones. So, Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus and the Samaritan woman chapter 4. Jesus and the Gentile official, chapter 4. Jesus and the man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. And in all of those one-on-one interactions, Jesus knows what is in those individuals. They speak to him on a human level, uh, and very quickly he reveals to them, he knows things about them and therefore their needs that he couldn't have known. He knows what's in them, as it says at the end of chapter 2. What's in Nicodemus? Works righteousness and self-deception, as we'll see this morning. What's in the Samaritan woman? Immorality. What's in the Gentile official? Unbelief. What's in the man at the pool in Bethesda? Superstition. He knows what's in them. And that statement that's made here about Jesus knowing all people and knowing what is in them, is a very interesting statement to be made about this man, Jesus Christ. Did you know the Jews had commentaries on their Bible, just like we do today, that were reputable, were used often, and we have record still of many of those. Uh, In one of their commentaries on the book of Exodus, for example, there's this great list there. Uh, that that author names of seven things that are hidden from man. Uh, and in that list are things like this. The day of one's death is hidden from man. There's really a lot of wisdom in this list. The depths of God's judgment. One's reward hidden from man. The time of the restoration of the kingdom of David is on that list that, they, that he has there. The last thing on that list from this Jewish commentary of things hidden from man is this. What is within another? It's hidden from man. Compare that to Jeremiah 17.10 where God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Jesus does what God does. The statement that we just read in John 2.25 is not the sort of statement that the scriptures ever say of mere men. So the question for us this morning as we come to this interaction with Nicodemus could be viewed this way. What is in the heart of Nicodemus? What is it that Jesus knows about him that he exposes and speaks to? And with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the passage. I'll be reading John 2.23 down to chapter 3 verse 15 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, The Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Nicodemus is one of these people that Jesus knows from the inside out. It's evident even in the way that the Apostle John has written this. At the end of uh, verse 2, in that final chapter, twice John uses the word man, anthropos. And then in verse 1, he says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. I tried to read it in a way that even brought that out. Uh, Chapter 3 also starts with a connective conjunction, showing there's a link between the end of chapter 2 and this start of chapter 3. So what that means then is Nicodemus is Exhibit A of the statement that was just made about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Exhibit A. There will be other exhibits as well as we go through this, this gospel narrative. We're going to ask three questions this morning. And The first one is this. What is in the heart of Nicodemus? What is it that Jesus perceives to be in his heart? That needs to be spoken to. And the answer is, in more than one way, the answer is self deception. Nicodemus is coming with a certain confidence that there are certain things that he knows, but he is deceived. Now, in order for us to know that, I mean, this is the first time for Nicodemus to come into the account here. Uh, How does a writer? help his readers know the backstory of characters in the account that we need to know? It could be a a difficult question for for the written text. It's easier, perhaps, in something like a movie. You can determine the way that the character's hair is styled to give a certain bit of background about that character. Uh, You can coach them in the tone of voice to use or the look to have on their faces. Uh, Should that character have a kind look, a cocky look, uh, a devious eye? Those are some of the ways that a character can show up on the scene in a movie and you immediately have a sense of something that you're supposed to know about this individual. Well, what about in the written text? What happens there is that the author chooses the details to, to give to us, to describe the scene in a way that we are prepared to hear what's about to come. So what does the Apostle John tell us here about Nicodemus to bring us up to speed? Well, quite a bit, quite a bit, especially if we see that connection between the end of chapter two and this. Nicodemus is one of these men who observed the signs that Jesus had worked and had believed them in a way. He even says that himself, doesn't he? He had believed them, but Jesus did not believe in him. It's the same verb there at the end of chapter two. They believed in him, but he did not believe in them. (laughs) He did not entrust himself to them. Nicodemus is one of these. We hear at the beginning of chapter three, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. We've talked a lot about the Pharisees already in this study. That gives us a lot of information. He's also a member of the Sanhedrin. You notice it says in verse one that he is a ruler of the Jews. He sits on the Sanhedrin council. That's significant. Nicodemus is deceived in two ways that come out of this dialogue. First, he's deceived in terms of his own reception and perception of Jesus. He comes to him, comes to him by night, which is significant in itself. At the end of this book, it's going to speak about Nicodemus again, and it's going to use that as a designation. Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night, way back in early chapter 3. That's not insignificant. He comes to Jesus speaking for some group, probably a group, perhaps among the Pharisee party. And he comes bearing gifts, the gifts of compliments. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's this ruler of the Jews coming to talk to Jesus, coming with with terms of respect. It's a big deal. He is what you'd call a big deal, a member of the Sanhedrin. And yet he, at his status, addresses Jesus with this honorific title, Rabbi means even more than. He's been called rabbi already by some of the disciples of John the Baptist, and that was respectful. But for a Sanhedrin member to call him by this title uh, means even more. It's a demonstration of respect, clearly. Uh, Furthermore, he states the conviction that Jesus is a teacher come from God. This is great. Nice guy. And Jesus replies to him like this, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, what? Maybe you're saying that along with Nicodemus. How is that a response to Nicodemus here? This is not the first time we have asked that question about Jesus' words in this gospel, is it? It's not the first time we've felt this. we felt that in what he said to Mary in chapter two, verse four. We felt it in the connection he drew between himself and the temple structure in John two nineteen. But each time that when we looked at those responses of Jesus, what we saw, what I hope you saw, was that Jesus' response was perfectly appropriate. Even to the very things that were being said to him that brought those responses, perfectly appropriate. It just came from a much broader perspective than his conversation partner had at that particular moment. How is this a response to Nicodemus and to his statement about who Jesus is? I think we're meant to hear in his statement uh, something of a question as well. We know this about you. I'm coming to hear more from you. Who, Who are you? Remember, it was the Sanhedrin that sent that group to John the Baptist earlier. And we saw there that there were some Pharisee members on the Sanhedrin when they sent that delegation to John the Baptist. What did they ask him? Tell us who you are. There's a similar sense here in his coming to Jesus. He wants to know who he is. And Jesus responds like this. Well, one of the ways this is a response to him is that Jesus is cutting straight through the niceties of lengthy, polite conversation starters. They were all about that in high society. We see it in, in, in a lot of written interactions. And Jesus plunges right in and tells Nicodemus what he needs to hear. So what does he need to hear? What is it? This is what we're asking, right? What does Jesus know about this man that would show that this is a proper response to, to Nicodemus' opening? Well, let's think about this. What have we seen in Nicodemus here, given John's introduction of him? Nicodemus has seen Jesus' signs. He's believed them to be authentic. He has concluded that that Jesus is from God. We hear that in his statements, don't we? And therefore, Nicodemus thinks he understands who Jesus is. He comes with a proclamation. We know these things about you, Jesus. Someone else has put it this way. The fundamental presupposition behind Nicodemus' opening, think about this, this is exactly right. The fundamental presupposition behind Nicodemus' opening is his ability to assess the evidence that Jesus may care to advance. Nicodemus, like other Jews, wants to set up criteria by which to assess who Jesus is. He claims he can see something of who Jesus is in the miracle. Jesus insists no one can see the saving reign of God at all, including the display of miraculous signs, unless born again. What does Nicodemus need? Does he need to see more things? No. No, his problem runs far deeper than that. He needs to be born with a birth that can only come from above. Look at verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's a statement about all mankind, isn't it? But it's a statement that is a reply to Nicodemus. The ability to see the kingdom of God depends on one thing only, Nicodemus, and that is receiving new life that has to come from above. He uses a word, Jesus does here, that has two meanings. You need to be born anothen. Anothen can mean again, or it can mean from above. And there's a sense here, isn't there, uh, that in which both of those meanings fit. This is a birth that, uh, for someone who has been born physically, they need this birth. Uh, but it is a birth that comes from above. Each of those meanings seems to fit, but the emphasis here... And what he's saying to Nicodemus, it's clear from what he's going to proceed to say, is on that second meaning, the fact that this is a birth that comes from heaven. The point he's making is clear. Nicodemus, without a divine work, you can't even see the kingdom, much less enter it. Nicodemus is clearly caught off guard by this statement. We see his reply in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, obviously, in his re- reply here, he's grabbing hold of that first meaning of the word, born again, uh, and seeming to suggest a misunderstanding there into what Jesus is saying. But we could really um, fail to do Nicodemus's intelligence justice here. Nicodemus is highly educated. He knows these meanings of the word. He is not actually wondering whether that's what Jesus is trying to say, right? Whether Jesus is suggesting that a man should be reborn again physically. The problem is not that he has tripped up on that word itself. The problem is that Nicodemus simply does not understand what Jesus is saying at all. It's not a misunderstanding of that term so much as a total misunderstanding of the notion that Jesus is speaking to as to this need. D.A. Carson makes this point and he says this then, he says, Nicodemus' response in verse four is therefore marked with incredulousness, which prompts him to reply with a crassly literalistic interpretation of what Jesus said as a way of expressing a certain degree of scorn. I think he's exactly right. That's what Nicodemus is doing here. Nicodemus does not understand what Jesus has just said. He needs clarification. And so Jesus politely responds and gives further clarification. So it's not a new topic. He's hammering Nicodemus with one reality in this conversation he has with him. And so he gives him clarification. This is very important. Jesus expands on what he just said in a way that should have brought clarity to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was expected to understand what Jesus is saying. And this further clarification is expected to give Nicodemus understanding. That's why Jesus will say in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Which means he's replying to Nicodemus as Nicodemus. He's giving him something that should be helpful to him to understand. If you're speaking to a Nicodemus, if you're speaking to a Pharisee member of the Sanhedrin on spiritual matters, you're going to help them by bringing them to the Old Testament. He's an expert in the Old Testament. This is how you would help him. Or he's supposed to be an expert anyway. This leads us to the second question of the three for this morning. First was what's in the heart of Nicodemus? This question now is, what is Nicodemus missing in the conversation? What is the disconnect that that is causing this failure? And there's a very short way to answer that. The short answer is, he is missing the Old Testament. That's what he's missing. He's utterly failed to perceive, in other words, the point of the scriptures that he is an expert in. Let's read what Jesus actually says first and then see how he's doing this. I'll read verses 5 to 8 together. Good, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind... Blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it uh, comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is Jesus not quoting the Old Testament directly, but making strong allusions to Old Testament realities. Realities that are present in a great number of places, but he uses some language that is especially Uh, relevant to to particular passages in the Old Testament prophets. And what we'll see as we look at these, uh, and then we need to notice is that these are passages, this is why Nicodemus should have understood this. These are Old Testament passages that are extremely clear that what mankind needs desperately from God is a work that only God can provide. He says what's required is that one be born, quote, of water and spirit. It's a specific construction. You've got one preposition with two objects. Neither one of them uh, has the article with it, an a or the, uh, born of water and spirit. In a construction like that, the two words are not being used to emphasize separate things, but they're being used together. What you need is the water and spirit rebirth. It's what you need. So this is not directly about baptism water, for example. Although I do think there's a symbolic link between what he is pointing at here and the ordinance of baptism that will be in the New Covenant. But it seems that what Jesus is doing here is he's alluding in particular back to the book of Ezekiel. And I would ask you to turn with me back there. Find Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want you to see it because I'm going to read several verses, it's easier to follow along if you can see with your eyes. His reference is going to come in verses 25 and following here, but I'd like us to start reading in verse 22. Because I want us to hear the emphasis in these passages on their need for God to act. And on God's emphasis here on the fact that their holiness is going to come via his work and not their work. Ezekiel 36, verse 32. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, Which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Now start to notice the imagery here in verse 25. Language about the authority and sovereignty of God in this rescue and it's Old Testament prophecy. This is not New Testament. The prophet Ezekiel here is being spoken through to declare the message of the Old Testament. And Jesus expects a teacher of Israel to be able to hear him allude to birth of water and spirit and to understand where he is directing his attention. You see that it's altogether reasonable that uh, for those uh, of flesh, that they're, if they need something of a transformation in the spiritual realm, it's not going to come from the realm of the flesh, of the earthly. This should be expected. This is his point in verse 6. You see verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. A man named Hoskins once said, there is no evolution from flesh to spirit. If you are to be alive spiritually, there must be movement from heaven. He then points Nicodemus to the very next chapter of Ezekiel. If you haven't turned back yet, you're going to save yourself a few seconds. Ezekiel 37. I'm very thankful that Ryan read that for us this morning. That's helpful. I'm not going to read it. Uh, all of those verses, but you can have it before your eyes, and I'll reference a few things here. If you remember what he read, this is the famous Valley of Dry Bones passage. This amazing prophecy that God gives his people. And what does that do there? What did we hear? It's going to compare what God is going to do for his people. Here's the comparison. Here's the imagery in this vision that Ezekiel receives. It's going to be like this. It's going to be like a word of declaration concerning the word of God going out to a, uh, a, a, a valley full of skeletons that makes breath or spirit enter them and causes them to come alive out of their graves. Jesus says, do not be amazed that I'm saying this. It's like the air It's like spirit. It's like breath. The wind. Think of the wind, he says. The trees have no power over the wind. It just goes. And you see its power on display in those tree limbs movement. Those born of the spirit are just like that. That's at the end of verse 8 there. It can be easy to misunderstand. He's not saying everyone who is born of the spirit is like this in the sense that uh, they are go where they will, Uh, they come and go where they please and you can't see them. That's not the comparison. It wouldn't make any sense at all. It's speaking about the relationship between the two. Let's keep thinking about this for a moment. You notice that in verse 8 it was the birth he's speaking of was being born again or born from above. Then he spoke of a birth of water and spirit. And now he says in verse 8, those who are born of the Spirit. Do you see how that is what is acted out in Ezekiel chapter 36? A recreation, a rebirth. Those who had died, born again by the movement and work of the Spirit. We could take all of this. Some of this I think could be a little bit confusing. We could put it in our language fairly easily. I think what we see here in Jesus' response to Nicodemus is this. Nicodemus cannot conceive of salvation, of safety before God, not stemming from two places, national identity and works righteousness. This is the framework that he is thinking in. That works-based holiness was central to the lifestyle of a Pharisee. He cannot conceive of salvation depending entirely upon a free gift from above that is required by all people, even members of the Sanhedrin, no matter who they are. He can't think in terms of those categories. This is the self-deception that is inside of Nicodemus. And you think about what that means about Nicodemus. I think this is amazing. That makes him simply a poster child for the sort of spiritual blindness that characterizes all unbelievers, Jew and Gentile. Leon Morris wrote, it is the perennial heresy of the human race to think that by our own efforts we can fit ourselves for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly the way he is thinking. He can't conceive of it being any other way. He, the Pharisee on the Sanhedrin, is a perfect representation of the state of natural man. You know, natural man can stomach a lot of things. Even miraculous mighty works can be stomached. Nicodemus saw miraculous things and said, that's authentic. What they cannot stomach is the notion that my peace my right standing before God would hang entirely upon his gracious free mercy and not upon something that I can earn for myself. Verse 9, Nicodemus responds like this. How can these things be? He is a very smart man. He is not confused about the nature of how wind works. That's not what he is Asking about. His mind is blown as to the notion of the implications of what Jesus is saying. That just as much as a tree branch depends on the wind to make it shake, just that much does a person's entrance into God's kingdom hang upon God's free choice and mercy. The movement of the Spirit where it wills. We are in a place then of utter desperation before God, aren't we? How can these things be? And this is where Jesus says, (laughs) look, I've really got to question your credentials here. If these are not even categories that you can think in. The whole scripture was pointing to this need and to this source of hope and salvation. That brings us to verse 11 and coming into verses 11 to 15 We could shift our mind then to the third and final question for this morning. Because Jesus is not going to leave Nicodemus in his love for Nicodemus. He will not leave him in that place. He has more for him. So here's the final question for this text. What does Nicodemus need to do? What does he need to do? Let me give an overall statement here at the outset and then we'll work through it as we see it. In these verses. He's going to give his answer from more than one angle. And we'll see it. But fundamentally. Here's what Nicodemus must do. He must look. In desperation and utter dependency. To Jesus for rescue. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly I say to you. We speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the end of what Jesus will say here, and he claims. To be the proper location of Nicodemus' searching. It's interesting how he brings it back to himself as the source. Nicodemus came to him asking him these questions. Nicodemus didn't know what he didn't know. Jesus knew what he didn't know. But Nicodemus was coming to the right place, wasn't he? Jesus is the proper location of Nicodemus' searching. For two reasons one of them is in verses 11 to 13 and it's given as a direct claim it goes something like this i know what i am talking about he says we there in verse 11 which is very confusing it's hard to think of who the we is there are a lot of different ideas some suggest we should hear in the we jesus and the father all of these are in a sense appropriate I don't know that that fits the context here. Uh, others say the we is Jesus and any true prophets who would speak of these things. The Old Testament prophets spoke of these things. That's possible. Others think the we is Jesus and his disciples, which is di- more direct. It may be that some of his disciples were there. The problem to me is it's hard to think of the disciples as being accurately described right now as speaking of what they know and what they have seen. That's pretty generous at this point the other problem is what is Jesus's driving point in this last section is his, is not his whole driving point that there is how many sources of this knowledge how many one there is one source of this knowledge and it is himself that's why he says in verse 13 no one has ascended into heaven there is no one who has gone to heaven seen the, rea- the heavenly realities, learned of the plan of God, uh, and come to share that with you. There is none who has that direct knowledge of the ways and the workings of God, except whom? Except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So some suggest about this we, and it's not a hill that I would die on, but I do think there's some strength to this suggestion. Some suggest that what Jesus is actually doing is... Sort of sardonically parroting the plural that Nicodemus came with. If you look at them, it sort of matches. How did Nicodemus begin? We know that you are a teacher come from God. And Jesus has told him, you know very little. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But he then immediately returns to speaking about his exclusivity. So it's quite possible. I don't think we want to get hung up on it. Let's notice how he is emphasizing himself. And here's what Nicodemus is faced with then. There's only one source of direct knowledge concerning who God is, how he has been pleased to work. And that source is the son of man who himself came down from heaven. And frankly, Nicodemus, if you don't <laughs> believe when I tell you about How things work here on earth. You notice these things he's told Nicodemus in verse 12 are earthly things. (laughs) If you don't believe when I tell you these things. These are the things which are happening on earth. And really which are elementary to kingdom teaching. There's much more to be taught. You're not ready for it. If you don't believe this. How will you believe when I tell you more? So Jesus is the proper location of Nicodemus' searching because only he grants access to the knowledge of the ways, works, plans of God. He's also the proper location of Nicodemus' searching according to verses 14 and 15 because if you don't look to him, And I'm not talking about simply. He almost changes the subject here, doesn't he? We're not talking anymore about looking to him for information. If you don't look to him for life itself, for your life, you are going to perish. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He has gone to the prophet Ezekiel. Now he goes into Old Testament narrative. He goes into the book of Numbers, chapter 21. You remember the story in Numbers 21? It's amazing. It's pretty bizarre in its context. The people of Israel... Or in the wilderness, they are grumbling against God. And God judges them by sending poisonous snakes among them to bite them and to kill them. Numbers 21, six says, many people died from this judgment. And God commands when they cry out and ask for help, God commands Moses to make an image of a poisonous snake and raise it up on a pole. And anyone who's been bitten and who's dying of that snake bite, if they choose to look in faith, to that model of a snake for rescue, they will live. And they do, and they do. What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? And my friends, what is Jesus saying to us this morning? All the rest of what we've seen this morning is certainly true. You come to Jesus to learn about God. You come to Jesus to know truth. But look, if you don't come to him, you lose out on much more than simply truth. If you don't come to him, you die. You die. And that's right where the parallel between Jesus and the model snake sort of ends. It's right where we see the typological fulfillment come in Jesus here. That model snake in Numbers 21, what kind of life did it give? It saved from what kind of death? It cured snake poison. That's what it did. It cured snake poison. It maintained a physical life a little while longer. It did exactly nothing in granting eternal life, did it? Not one thing. Therein lies the typological heightening. Looking to Jesus, does that save you out of the clutches of temporal, physical, Needs and suffering? Eventually, (laughs) but not immediately. What about physical death? Does it save you from going through the experience of physical death? No, no. It does way, way more than that. Looking to the crucified Lord Jesus produces what is elsewhere characterized as taking a man who is dying of thirst and creating a river of water inside of him so that he might never be thirsty again. It gives rescue from everlasting death. From what the book of Revelation will call the second death. Revelation 2.11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 15. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is what he'll speak of. Here, a while from now in John eleven twenty six, 26, when he'll say, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In terms of the narrative here, the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, Nicodemus started off in quite a verbose way. He had a lot to say. That has shortened and shortened throughout this little conversation. And now he has nothing to say in reply. He's speechless. We're speechless when we're pushed to a complete paradigm challenge. And that's what he's been pushed to. It's just not at all like he has ever thought. He had plans. He had confidences. He had reasons to boast. And Jesus has said, if any of that is not rooted in me, it profits you nothing. Nicodemus, you're dying of the serpent's poison. What are you going to do? Anything that we would seek to know, to learn about ourselves, about the God of all creation, about our future, the future, we learn from Jesus. Any knowledge we possess comes from Jesus, who is the truth. Any hope that we would possess, it comes from Jesus. And Jesus is not done with Nicodemus here, not by a long shot. But at this moment, he has left Nicodemus shaken. And the blessing for us to recognize this morning, my friends, is that what Nicodemus failed to see in his context is on clear display for us in our context. It was there in the Old Testament to be seen. But it was shadowy. It was there in sign and symbol. In Christ and in his new covenant, we do not live and know and trust by sign and shadow. The substance has come and presented himself before us. Christ Jesus has been put on display to be seen and trusted in and looked to for life. Just listen to what we now have clearly presented before our eyes. The very necessities that Nicodemus responded to with how can these things be are for those who know and love the gospel, they're simply a matter of course. I'll read Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Listen to what is now on full display for us to know and rejoice in and rest in. Paul writes this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You hear what Jesus is getting across to Nicodemus? Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus was giving the gospel to Nicodemus. Are you relieved this morning that the gospel message does not change? That the message that he was giving of life to Nicodemus is the same message for us to believe in and rest in and rejoice in. It's the message of forgiveness of sins. Hope for the hopeless. Those who have rebelled against God. Hopeless. Except for the hope that he has given. If you don't know whether the Lord has forgiven your sins this morning. Or... um, I think about this in a particular way often regarding older children who have grown up in Christian homes. It's such a common question. I can remember wrestling with this a great deal. Am I a Christian? I think so. I don't know what to say. Listen, the questions are two. Has God shown you that you are bad? That your sin is an awful, awful thing. Have you become frightened by the realization of what your sin deserves? Has he shown you that? If the answer is yes, then there is weight on your shoulders. And there is fear that is rightly produced by that. And then the other question is, where do you look for rescue? Is there only despair? Is there no hope? Is it time to get creative and try harder? Or when God says in his word that there is one Savior given to men, do I take him at his word? Is it enough for me that that's what he has said? God has raised up his son on a pole dead as a guilt offering for sin and declare to us that whoever looks to him for rescue he will forgive their sins they will belong to him they will be his has he saved me it's not a question that you're doomed to wrestle with forever because the answer is found in a person who has done something objective in time and space so claims God to fully satisfy for our sin and to give us the very righteousness of Christ himself. The answer is found in a person that you either choose to trust or you don't. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of of the Old Testament Scriptures. It is the word of the New Testament Scriptures. This is the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your gospel. That word means good news, and it is good news indeed. Lord, we pray that you would for your children here this morning, that you would only renew the great humility and lowness that is fitting when we realize how utterly undeserving we are of your grace and how utterly helpless we are apart from your grace. Lord, I similarly pray for any who do not yet know you in a saving way here this morning, that you would give them that same lowness, that same humility, To understand the depth of their need but to be willing to not insist that there's something else they must can should do about it you demand that we come to you with empty hands admitting our need and admitting the utter sufficiency of jesus work we thank you for him and we pray lord we pray that you would draw us near to you in him and that for all of us here this morning whom you are so richly blessing by allowing us to hear your gospel, that for all of us, the response would be, yes, Lord, yes. I believe in your Son. I stake my eternity on his work being sufficient in your sight because you have told me that it is. Thank you for your promises, Lord, and for your commands. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.